Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders, The Anatomy of a Multibagger is sponsored by Tegas. Tegas is an innovative and disruptive company that is changing the way professional investors work. For more information, please visit their site at tegas.co. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. Welcome to the Compounders Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, and I'm a principal and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. We just wrapped up season one of Compounders after doing 12 interviews with public company CEOs. For this episode, we wanted to look back at those first 12 interviews and take away the largest, the most important lessons and share some of our favorite vignettes from the first season. For those of you who are following along uh, on the audio version, we will also have some accompanying slides from a PowerPoint presentation uh, with some of the stats and some of the highlights. So if you want to, um, if you want to see the slides, you can either check out Cove Street's blog or you can uh, view the YouTube version. As usual, uh, Safe Harbor, uh, some of the securities that we're going to mention here are owned by Cove Street. Uh, nothing about this episode is investment advice and you should, you should do your own work on any security. In terms of what this presentation is going to cover, um, first, we're going to do uh, kind of a, a season one recap in terms of the companies we spoke with and then some stats regarding those companies. We're then going to move to major themes that we heard throughout season one through lines that were um, mentioned multiple times by different CEOs. Then we're going to do a sneak peek of uh, season two. Uh, and then we're going to go into the highlights and replays of our favorite clips from the first 12 episodes. Uh, we won't forget to thank our sponsor, which was Tegas, uh, which was nice enough uh, uh, to sponsor the first season of Compounders. Um, and then we will finish with a request for feedback and, and contact information in case you have uh, thoughts on how we can make the podcast better or you have uh, suggestions for guests. So uh, moving to slide four, for those of you who are, who are following on YouTube, um, stats from season one, as I mentioned, we did 12 interviews. The average market cap was $4.2 billion. The largest company that we spoke with was um, Markel, um, which is a Fortune 500 insurance company. And the smallest company uh, we spoke to was UFP, Tech, sorry, UFP Technologies, uh, which is a sub $500 million market cap company. We had two Fortune 500 companies on during season one, which was really gratifying given that it was our first season. And if you're following on the slides, you'll see that we had a really eclectic mix of industries. Uh, we certainly learned a lot about waste management and collection, um, given that we interviewed two companies in that space. We also learned, learned a lot about insurance, given that we interviewed two companies in, in, in the insurance world. But the rest of the companies um, represent a, a quite eclectic mix of, of, of different industries. Moving on to the recurring themes that we heard throughout season one, there were actually a number of things that stood out. Not every CEO mentioned these things, but these five things um, were mentioned by multiple CEOs. First, 
Um, and I think this this topic was discussed by the most number of people on the show was clarity of vision. And the idea that without clarity of vision and a level of focus, it is very hard for companies to be successful in the long run. Um, next, uh, I think part of it is I, I always ask companies about how, how much they've been willing to suffer uh, short-term pain for, for long-term game. But I think a lot of the companies we spoke to indicated that there are a lot of places in which they are willing to suffer short-term margin hits or short-term uh, reductions to profitability in order to, to you know, hit home runs for the long run. Um, another thing that we heard pretty consistently from a lot of the CEOs who kind of came into a situation where maybe the culture wasn't perfect or, or the company was in transition is that if, you're, if, you, if there's something that you want to change, do it now. Don't wait move as fast as you can, and you can probably move faster than you think. The appreciation of people and showing your appreciation as a company and as a management team for people who are at the bottom of the organization was mentioned a number of times by, by our CEOs. Um, and so I, the idea is it's, just, it's absolutely essential for management teams to find a way to motivate and show appreciation for people who are at the bottom of the organization, because in a lot of ways, like they are the lifeblood of the company and um, the management team has to make sure that those people are motivated and incentivized to kind of keep, keep, keep showing up to work every day. And then lastly, um, there were a lot of themes, but another one that came up pretty, pretty often was the idea that the best employees are the ones who think and act like owners. So how do you do that? To, in order to, to incentivize people to, to think like an owner, companies need to empower people to make decisions. And, and a lot of CEOs mentioned how a good way to do that um, and to make them feel like owners is to, to make them shareholders. So push share ownership as far down the, um, the, the totem pole as possible. Moving quickly to a, a sneak preview for season two. Uh, season two will launch at the beginning of December. We already have a great lineup of, of companies booked. Um, we are going to have our first uh, non-US listed company, which I'm really excited about. Uh, we're going to have the CEO of a company that started off as a SPAC. Um, and so that's always an interesting discussion. Uh, we've actually booked another Fortune 500 CEO. Um, and then we have a CEO of a company that was recently the subject of a short report, which I assume will be a really fascinating discussion. Um, so I think what we're learning is that word of mouth is helping us a lot. Um, our guests are recommending other uh, compounders, uh, other people who could be on the um, on the podcast. In addition, investors are introducing us to the companies that they own and follow. So that it's really help, helping to to kind of find other, new guests and, and sources that are kind of outside of our close circle here at Cove Street. So we're aiming to have twelve episodes again, uh, and and this is kind of my request for anybody listening. We still have a few slots, so please reach out to us with recommendations and introductions. You know, we certainly need the support of listeners to continue to source interesting guests. Um, I think we have great momentum, but we can always use uh, more recommendations from the people who really appreciate what we're doing here. Moving on to episode two, which was our first interview, uh, we interviewed Allegheny CEO Weston Hicks. Uh, Allegheny is a Fortune 500 insurance company. It has two divisions. One is an insurance division and the other one is a reinsurance division. My favorite clip from this episode was when Weston was discussing the process through which Allegheny bought TransRe in 2011. It was precisely when everyone hated reinsurance companies. So the lesson I take away, and, and I'm biased because I'm a value investor, but I think even as a public company CEO, being a patient contrarian value investor 
um, can lead to game-changing acquisition opportunities. So as, as Weston discusses, they bought Transree at a price that they thought was very favorable precisely because other people were, were the, the, the industry was out of favor. Um, and so, you know, I, th I think this is a good example of how you can employ value investing as a public company CEO. Uh, check out the clip uh, if you want to understand exactly what Weston was talking about. When we saw that Transree might be available, I knew Transree well from my former life as a securities analyst. I knew it was a great reinsurer. I knew the people. Uh, I knew Mike Sapner, who, uh, who was the CEO and, um, at the time. And uh, I felt that uh, this was a chance to get a great underwriting platform at a very reasonable price because it was out of favor and you know, trading below book value. Everybody hated reinsurers back then. Got it. That's that's really insightful. So, and was so there it, a wasn't, it wasn't a strategic addition to, you know, it wasn't saying, you know, we need to buy this to have our our sister company be stronger. It was just it was purely an opportunity to buy a great company at a reasonable price. Got it. Um, and was there, a, I didn't get a chance to go back and look at the relative multiples, but was there a multiple arbitrage as well? That they're trading 85% of book, you guys were at 110 or something like that. So it's just immediately accretive or was that not part of the, the, the premise? Well, it was immediately accretive to book to our book value per share. And uh, in fact, at the time we, uh, we closed the acquisition in March of 2012, we had one of those rare events, which was a bargain purchase gain. Nice. Where we acquired the company at a price that was less than the uh, accounting fair value of their net assets. Moving on to episode three, we interviewed Markel co-CEO Tom Gaynor. For anyone who's active in the value investing world, you'll know uh, Tom um, as an active participant in the, the happenings that, that used to go on at the Berkshire meeting when it was held in person. But also he's a you know, frequent guest on, on podcasts about value investing. Uh, so Markel is an insurance company as well. Uh, so, you know, a, very similar to Allegheny in a lot of ways. Uh, my favorite clip from, from the Markel episode was Tom explaining how being a co-CEO, not just a CIO or chief investment officer at Markel, has made him a more patient, empathetic, and understanding investor, you know, when a public company he invests in is not performing as well as it could. So the idea is, that being a, a co-CEO where he's actually dealing with operating companies that Markel owns gives him an understanding of how hard it is to be uh, you know, a leader of a, of, a, of a business and how hard it can be to, to, to make changes, you know, even when you know they're the right things to do. So the lesson that we, we took from, the, from this, this clip from, from Gaynor is that it's while investors often want change to happen at companies really fast, that can that that pace can be faster than any company can actually change. So the investment community should be more patient and understand that even very competent leaders can't control the pace of change. Check out this clip from Tom. What do you think you learned about leadership being a co-CEO that you might not have learned if you were simply just a chief investment officer who was focused on public investments? Right. Well, uh, a lot of things. And among them, is how hard it is to really run a good business. Um, Buffett made the statement a long time ago where he said, being an investor made him a better businessman and being a businessman made him a better investor. I think that is epically true. And I'm very fortunate and lucky to be able to sit in the seat where I do, where I get to have both those roles 
as a fundamental component of, of my job every single day. And for instance, getting back to your earlier question about my grandmother's holding periods, well, I have more of, because of my CEO responsibilities and because I'm re responsible for operating businesses and people and plants and factories and distribution systems and things of that nature. And I have appreciation for how hard it is to do that really, really, really well. When I find uh, an investment and in a company that we're passive owners of just owning the shares and I observe and see and gain some conviction and belief that that management team is doing it well, well you know what? They're going to get the benefit of the doubt from me. They're going to get a longer leash. I will, I will be understanding if they stumble or go through more difficult periods than I might have been if I was just looking at isolated numbers on a spreadsheet or the two-dimensional reality of staring at the computer screen rather than the three-dimensional real reality of actual human beings with red blood flowing through their through their blood cells. Moving on to episode four, we had an incredible interview with StoneX CEO, Sean O'Connor. Um, StoneX is a mini conglomerate in the financial services industry. They do everything from helping their customers hedge uh, currency and commodities to uh, an international payments business. My favorite clip from this episode was Sean telling an eye-opening story about how in 2009, his unknown little company bought FC Stone, which was a well-known great franchise for pennies on the dollar. And this deal uh, was literally one that changed the trajectory of the company forever and has allowed it to be a hundred bagger um, over a 20 year period. So the lesson here is that um, while it can be very difficult to put money to work during uncertain times, that's precisely when you can find the best acquisition opportunities. So as, as Sean kind of highlights here is like, you don't be afraid to swing big if you see crazy valuations for quality assets. Check out the clip here. I remember very clearly in, in February, 2009, um, this was a company that had FC Stone had IPO'd in 2007, uh, had a market cap of close to $2 billion at one point, um, had about a $70 million customer loss and in February 2009 was trading with a market cap of $20 million. And, you know, our view was, this is just crazy. And, you know, we should definitely look at this because this is a company we intrigued with. Um, it has a very similar culture to us. Um, it is uh, providing, you know, a high touch um, service to its clients. It's been around for 30, 40 years, it, you know, in its in its place, it is a franchise and a recognized franchise, and, and it has tens of thousands of customers. Um, those are all things when you're starting up a company that are really, really hard to build organically. Um, so we decided to engage. Um, kind of an interesting story, actually. I, I tried to call the CEO um, and obviously got through to his assistant, who apparently refused to give the message to the CEO because she didn't know who I was. So eventually I had to call one of our banks to get introduced to the CEO. Um, they kind of came back to us through their bankers and said, listen, we've got, you know, 20 or 30 people in a process. You guys are way behind everyone else. And, you know, we want letters of indication in sort of two weeks time. And, and we said, fine, um, you know, give us access to the data room. We'll look at it. And, and everything we looked at basically confirmed to us 
that this was an isolated event triggered by, you know, a very extreme market dislocation. And if you could sort of take care of that, what was left behind was a really, really great business, a true franchise, a business that, you know, had been around, you know, for 50 years, great reputation. And you were literally had the potential to buy this business for pennies on the dollar. Moving on to episode five, we had a a very interesting discussion with Car Auction Services Chairman Jim Hallett. Um, Car Auction Services is a company that is involved in the remarketing of used cars. So, um, you know, when when car dealers can't sell a a car off their lot, um, they often take it to an auction to sell to sell the car. Um, and so they do a lot of things, but that's that's a simple overview of, of, of or, or example of what Car does. My favorite clip from this episode was Jim discussing how, in order to inspire employees, he asked them what they would do for one more car. I really like this concept of like, how far would you go for your customer? Um, I think that concept is applicable across industries, um, and and I like that like. The idea of incentivizing people to think about what they would do, um, you know, if they could do one more incremental good thing for their customers. And so the lesson here is, you know, motivating employees requires both keeping them focused on the long term vision of the company, kind of the higher level uh, goals, but also pushing them to go a little further for their customers on a day to day basis. Check out this insightful clip from uh, Jim Hallett. How do you infuse that Jim Hallett optimism in the rest of your company, starting with obviously the top management, but even people who are, you know, you know, working at physical auctions? How do you how do you keep them excited about going to work every day? Yeah, you know, I'll use an overused phrase: the, you know, the the speed of the the speed of the boss is the speed of the gang. And I think it starts by just trying to be a good example to everybody every day. Uh, you know, it's not about wearing a CEO title or having some name plaque on the door or having a having a reserved parking spot. Uh, it's about coming to work and demonstrating how passionate you are about this business, how much you care. Um, and how much you're willing to do. Um, I have a quote that I often use with our employees uh, and they can repeat it to you. If you were to ask one of them, I said, how far would you go for one more car? And that's kind of the attitude is, you know, those living examples of what would you do for one more car? What would you do for one more customer? Um, And how far would you go? Um, and to do it with a smile on your face and do it with energy and enthusiasm. Um, there's no question that, you know, I think it's very important. I can't walk down the hall or get on an elevator or go anywhere in the building without speaking to people. I never look at my shoe tops. I'm always looking at people and looking them in the eye and asking them how their day is and how things are. And, you know, I think it's just, it's just being human and it's not getting caught up in your own press. Moving on to episode six, where we interviewed Millicom CEO Mauricio Ramos. Millicom is a Latin American telco active in in countries such as Colombia and Guatemala, uh, where they offer broadband and wireless services to customers in that region. Um, My favorite clip from this episode was Mauricio explaining what he learned from working with Liberty Media's John Malone and Liberty Global CEO Mike Fries, and from being on the board of Charter, 
um, about how to be successful in cable. And, you know, Mauricio has had some incredible influences um, in his life regarding, you know, the, the best practices in cable. And the lesson that he, he takes from it was that clarity and focus are absolute keys to success. If a company is doing too many things, it's probably not doing anything exceptionally well. So the solution to that is eliminate peripheral endeavors to focus on a core. Um, I think you'll really enjoy this clip um, where he talks about what he learned from John Malone. The playbook is well known, and obviously we've used a ton of it. Thank you to John and to Mike and to everybody who gave me a place to learn for 15 years, and hopefully I was taking good, good notes. Um, but obviously there are some differences because we operate in different markets and we're at an earlier stage of development. So, you know, we got to drive things um, according to that. I, I do learn a few things from, from John and, and many of the board members there. Number one was focus and clarity. You got to be clear on what you're doing. So when I joined Millicom, we were a little bit all over the place not just in Africa, but also in the lines of businesses that we were trying to achieve. We were trying to be a little, a little too much of a Netflix, a little too much of a Uber, a little too much of everything. And we kind of had forgotten the fact that, you know, we're in the connectivity business. So rightly so, and I think it has worked, we killed all those projects and we brought the company back to the basics of connectivity. And, and when, when you look at that, that remains very much something that some of the Liberty companies, if you want to call them Liberty companies, because they're associated with John, um, I still do. You know, when you, when you hear um, Tom at Charter talk about the business they're in, and I'm obviously a board member, it revolves around, around providing a great product, a great service, understanding that we're in the connectivity business first and foremost. So that we had with a ton of clarity at Millicom. And I basically said the money, the capital allocation needs to go out of Africa, out of, out of all these crazy little businesses. And it's got to go into building a cable network and building a 4G so that we can provide connectivity, which is a great opportunity that we had ahead of us because penetrations are so low. Moving on to episode seven, where we interviewed uh, Avid Technology CEO, Jeff Rossica. Uh, Avid is a leader in software for the audio and video production uh, world. Um, and my favorite clip from this episode was Jeff sharing the biggest lesson he's learned since he became CEO. Um, Avid was a company that had a number of management changes, and it was a company that was transitioning to a, a new business model. And Jeff's big lesson was that you can make required changes faster than you think. So the solution is just to rip off the Band-Aid. Um, and, the, and the lesson I took from this is that, you know, especially as a new leader, you might want to be patient and not push for change because you're worried about upsetting people or negatively impacting the culture. But in reality, it's often worse if you wait and you should institute changes as fast as you possibly can. Here's a clip from Jeff discussing this issue. To hear about any, you know, any mistakes that you made early on, and, and what you learned from them, anything that you would be willing to share, you know, with 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 humility about, you know, yeah. the, your learning process. I, I make mistakes every day in my life as a CEO. So some, hopefully, most of them are very small ones. Um, but you know, like you, you've got to make, you've got to, you got to fail, and you got to fail fast. I mean, any any fast moving technology company will say that. Um, I, I think that you know, I, I wouldn't necessarily put 
my hand on one thing. I think it's just lessons learned along the way. I, I think you learn, you learn small and, and sometimes big uh, lessons that you have to adjust your approach or adjust your thinking or adjust your um, decision-making uh, as, a, as both a CEO, but also as a, as a leadership team. And so I think that I'd say the biggest thing I've learned, I've always been someone who felt like you can rip a Band-Aid and move faster. I've never felt like you can break anything. Um, if, if it's a good, solid company with a good underpinning and a good foundation, you can change fast. It really won't blow up. It really will. It will take it. It will move on. I think the only thing I would say that I probably learned more of is I was right and I could do it even faster. And I think there's things that I could have moved faster on. I could have changed faster that, you know, you, even though I'm a believer that you can, you can quote unquote, rip the bandaid and, and move forward and change and, and, and fix things. Um, I, I think that even I will regulate myself a little bit to be, oh, am I, you know, am I going too fast? Am I, am I, ripping too much there. Um, I think I've convinced myself through all of this, you know, jumping into this role, changing the company as fast as I, and I say, I, I'm the CEO, a, a large team of people have been changing this company over the past three years. Um, but I think that I've learned as a CEO that we can change even faster, that we can attack more. Now with some humility, I'd say the other thing I've learned is that you can't change everything at once that, that, you know, my appetite for change sometimes is we can do a lot more than we can actually handle as an organization. Moving on to episode eight, where we interviewed um, Clean Harbor's chairman, CEO, and founder, Alan McKim. Alan founded Clean Harbor's, which is an environmental uh, waste company, waste collection, waste management company that um, was founded 40 years ago. Um, and my favorite clip from this episode was Alan discussing the, the idea that not all companies are born with return on capital as a North Star. You know, sometimes it's an evolution that can be helped along by board members and shareholders. You know, what Alan discusses here is that the company was not focused enough on returns. And, uh, you know, the, it, and as a result, this returns on capital were not nowhere near um, where they are today. And over time, both pressure from board members and shareholders has really changed the way the company thinks about um, you know, the, the return on capital as an important metric. So the lesson I took away here is, is kind of for more broadly is that companies with lots of employees and operations across many states or countries can be so focused on the day-to-day -day that they may not be paying enough attention to the metrics that investors care about. But if you're an, as an investor, if you're a good partner, you can work with a company to help them continuously improve. Here's the clip of Alan discussing this. We don't see many CEOs that have that North Star. We wish they did, that return on investment capital, like everything we should do I should, should have a higher return than our weight average cost of capital. Where did that emanate from? Like, where, where did you develop that North Star? I would say that one of our board members uh, and one of our shareholders together um, really took issue with the lack of return on investment capital that we were generating here. And um, it wasn't simply that take this number from here and make it that, you know, it was the continuous improvement expectation that they had, that, that we weren't building on it. Our, our ROIC has not always been where it is today. And I think that um, we weren't paying close enough attention to it. We were certainly looking at our capital budget. We're looking at, you know, sort of good use of, of um, you know, good returns on our investment to replace equipment or expand equipment or plants, 
but overall, um, it wasn't at the level that that it should have been. And I, and I would say, you know, with a couple of shareholders pounding their fist and one of our board members really making taking issue with it, I think that we realized that uh, we needed to change. And um, and I think that's how it came about. To be honest with you, moving to episode nine. Uh, where we interviewed Viasat Executive Chairman Mark Dankberg. Uh, for any of you who uh, don't, you know, haven't heard us talk about Viasat before, Viasat is a global satellite broadband company that offers um, broadband connectivity to the U.S. military, to airplanes, and then consumers around the world. My favorite clip uh, is Mark talking about the value of understanding market dynamics and why not all industries eventually end in a winner-take-all situation. So Mark discusses being a voracious reader of business strategy and business history, and that he uses that to frame Biasat's you know, go forward strategy. So the lesson I took away is that as a company leader, you should look outside of a specific industry um, to better understand business theory and general business strategy so that you can kind of anticipate where your end markets are going over time. Don't get so stuck in your own industry that you can't learn from how other industries have evolved over time. Here's a great clip from Mark discussing, um, you know, his, fo his focus on, on strategy and, and business history. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm a voracious reader of business theory and, uh, and understanding sort of general business dynamics. So these the examples that you gave uh, and that, that have turned out to be true in winner-take-all markets all benefit from network effects. And, network effect, and a simple way to state, state network effects are the more customers you have, the more attractive your service is to new customers, right? That, 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 is, that is the value proposition. So, and all, those almost always depend on multi-sided markets. So if you think about Google and search, say the more search users they have, the, the more attractive they are to advertisers, more attractive they are to advertisers, the more money they get, which means that they can do invest more money in search, and it basically creates this virtuous circle. If you think about Uber, you know, the multi-sided markets are drivers and passengers. Now, the, the Uber one's a little complicated because you've got Lyft in there, which is a very similar one, and the switching costs are almost zero, right, for, for both the drivers and the passengers. So that's a moderating effect. But, but those, the, this idea of network effects, which is if I have a million customers, I'm more attractive to the million and first than I am when I have 100 customers. Well, broadband service is the opposite because what you have is a finite inventory of bandwidth, right? And all your customers' concerns are about is how many other people do I have to share my bandwidth with? Even, you know, if you take the best infrastructure in the U.S., and it's probably like, think of cable, you know, good infrastructure, Comcast, Charter, the biggest problem that people have with those networks are in the, in the peak busy hours when people have to share their bandwidth with others and the network slows down, right? So in an environment where the demand for bandwidth is constantly growing and the demand is greater than the supply, it's the opposite of network effects. Is if, if, you get too, if you get too many customers, your service slows down. Moving on to episode 10, we had a fascinating interview with the St. Joe Company CEO, uh, George Gonzalez. 
For any of you who are not familiar with uh, St. Joe, it is a company that owns a vast amount of real estate in Western Florida and has been developing out that area um, over a number of years. My favorite clip from this episode was George discussing how he asked the people at the company to act as if it was their money on the line. According to George, that leads to a clarity of thought when making decisions regarding capital allocation. So this is a company that has a lot of different places it can invest. It can invest in commercial real estate. It can invest in real in, in, in residential real estate. And as people are making those decisions, George wants people to act as if it was their own money on the line, as if they were making that investment. And the lesson I took away from that was that, you know, of course, all companies want their employees to act like owners. But often that mentality is hard to embed within an organization. But by keeping the message simple, and it allows people to, to ignore the noise and focus on making the right long-term decisions. Here's George discussing this subject. In your shareholder presentations, you mentioned the term owner-oriented. A lot of people say they're long-term focused, but what does that mean to you practically? And how does being owner-oriented impact the decisions you make regarding capital allocation? Absolutely. So what it means to us, and I know this sounds overly simplistic, but uh, it's something that uh, we stress uh, every day. Make decisions as if it was your own money. Uh, I know it sounds simplistic, but if you create that culture and you reinforce it, uh, that simplistic approach uh, tends to make a big difference in, in the culture of the company. So every decision we make, um, whether it's uh, an apartment project, a residential community, the type, uh, the risk that we're willing to assume, uh, we always look at that and we always look at those decisions through the prism of what, what, uh, what would you do if it was your own money? And one of the effects of that is it creates a clarity and thought. What I mean by that, oftentimes, uh, the corporate world is uh, has, uh, it, this is my term, a lot of mumbo jumbo, right? There's a lot of uh, things that um, create a fog in decision making. Uh, by having this owner-oriented culture as if it was your money that you were investing, it creates a clarity uh, that is very helpful in making business decisions. Because we all know as individuals, if you're investing your own money, you typically would have some, you know, a clarity of thought. Of, of making that investment and in, in what your goals were and the risk that you're willing to take. Moving on to episode 11, this was our interview with Heritage Crystal Clean CEO, Brian Mercado. Uh, for people who are not uh, familiar with Heritage, it's a competitor to, to um, Clean Harbors, which we also had on the show. It's in a company that, that collects environmental waste and also uh, collects um, used motor oil for its customers. Um, my favorite clip from this episode was Brian explaining the best ways to attract and retain employees, especially in a very difficult job market. So this is a company that has a lot of people that work in the field and um, especially during COVID and especially in a tight job market, it can be very hard to attract people um, because these are very difficult jobs. And so, um, you know, Brian has thought a lot about how to attract and retain and support people. And the lesson I took away is that in businesses where automation opportunities are limited, the people are your greatest assets. So as a result, companies need to make sure that the people who, they, who work in the field are supported and know they are valued, even if it means giving out the CEO's cell phone number. Here's Brian discussing this. One thing that I'm always curious about is, is how companies approach hiring and retention. I would love to hear a little more since you just started talking about that. 
you know, what, what have you learned about hiring and retention that you think can be helpful, um, you know, as, as you try to build out the sales force at, at Heritage? Anything in your career that you've, any ways that you've, th- you know, changed the way you th- think about hiring and retention? Yeah, I mean, I'm thinking more about retention today than I ever have because it's the toughest job market I've ever seen, you know, especially post the pandemic. And I know it'll get better over time, but we've got to work through this near-term crisis. It's not just us. I've, I've talked to quite a few CEOs at a, a couple of conferences over the last few weeks. Everybody is struggling to, to get employees, especially CDL drivers, which our guys are sales and service reps first, but they have to have a commercial driver's license. Very difficult to find those guys. I mean, they're in short supply today. So retention, when we get somebody in the door, it's extremely important to find a way to hang on to them. I, you know, I think we hang on to them by, by having more touch points with the employee. You can't stick these guys on an island and expect them to survive. They, they go to a branch in Grand Rapids, Michigan, for example. They meet you know, the local people there. They don't know anything about the corporate office. So we think it's important to embrace these people you know, assign a mentor to those people so we can continue to educate and, 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 and support the new employees, get them to the corporate office so they can see the breadth and scale of the company. And, and I hope that we can, we can keep them. I mean, I've got lots of service reps that have my cell phone number and I'm happy to talk to them if, it, if I can make them comfortable if they're having a problem. I mean, we've got to send the message that we're here to take care of you. Moving on to episode 12, uh, we interviewed Adam Simpson, who is the CEO of EW Scripts. EW Scripts is, is mainly a broadcast television company. Um, so think, you know, your local affiliate of ABC, NBC, CBS, or Fox. Um, but the company also has moved into the um, over-the-air uh, TV market. My favorite clip from this episode was Adam discussing an instance when the company has been willing to suffer short-term losses in order to garner outsized long-term gains. In this case, Scripps acquired into the podcast business, spent a bunch of money, which means they lost a lot of money to build it, and then exited once the valuations got more frothy. So what he talks about in the rest of the episode is is that he's a portfolio manager. And as a CEO, you should be a portfolio manager. You should look at your assets. You should um, ask yourself, is someone else a better owner of this business than we are? And if so, you should be willing to monetize that asset so that you can invest more in businesses in which you have a more, comp- more of a competitive advantage. So the idea is to not fall in love with your business just because you built it. If someone else values it more highly and you can put that capital to work elsewhere, you know, that's probably a pretty good way to create value for shareholders. Here's Adam explaining that. Yeah, I mean, sure. Here we are talking on a podcast. Um, uh, you know, several years ago, our company we bought a company called Midroll Media. At the time, it was the uh, first exit in the podcast industry in which a small podcast startup had been sold to a, a public company, and we were the first company to be in podcasting. It was at a time when I would talk to investors about podcasting, and they would say, I don't understand. What is this? Right? You're talking about two people sitting over a microphone and talking about computers? And I couldn't get people to understand the value of podcasting, but we saw what was happening. We saw that more and more young people were spending their time at all times with earbuds in their ears. 
You know, if you if you ride the subway, if you take a bus, if you take a walk, all you see are people occupied and with earbuds, and they were listening to something. And we knew they weren't just listening to streaming music or to iTunes, they were listening to podcasts. And we really saw podcasts as the parallel of where talk radio was moving. And talk radio was an incredibly powerful medium, still is a very powerful medium, but we recognize the waning power of terrestrial radio and the growing power of on-demand and digital delivery. So we invested in in Midroll, and then we acquired another company, Stitcher. We combined those companies as as a fully verticalized platform. We then bought another company, Triton Digital, and for a while, we were running losses through the P&L as we grew those businesses to scale. And ultimately recognizing that this very unsexy marketplace that we had gotten into was getting very sexy around us and valuations were very, very high. In the midst of the pandemic last year, we decided to sell our podcasting business, Stitcher, to SiriusXM and then to subsequently exit our digital audio business, uh, Triton Digital, to, um, to iHeart to really good returns that I think proved, again, that thesis of Scripps's willingness to, to identify where the consumer is going, to invest both through capital and investment through the PL in a new business, to organically grow that business, and then to get out when we recognized that we didn't have the scale that was probably going to be in a position to compete. Moving on to episode 13, which was the final interview for season one, we spoke with UFP Technologies Chairman and CEO, Jeff Bailey. UFP Technologies is a um, is a critical component supplier to mostly the medical industry, where they make very hard to fabricate parts that go into um, medical devices. My favorite clip uh, from this episode is Jeff talking about how his views on attracting and compensating people uh, have changed over the last 25 years. We talk a lot about people and compensation and retention and culture on this podcast. And I really appreciated Jeff's thought that when it comes to compensation, you kind of get what you pay for. You know, you, you need to pay up for good people. And companies can become attractive places to work if they are willing to pay up for good people and combine that with an entrepreneurial culture and the opportunity to become rich if the stock appreciates a lot. Here's Jeff discussing this. How have you been able to attract, um, you know, kind of people who worked at larger companies to work at UFP and what is the, what is the attraction to them um, as, you know, as they start at a smaller company? Yeah, good question. So we had to kind of break our own rules around compensation and pay what it took. We had to be, you know, we were tired of getting underwhelmed by trying to stuff somebody into our compensation system. So we're like, this is the person we want. What does it take to, to attract them? Um, and then the promise is, is we, we, we explain the vision. Here's where we're trying to go. Here's how you fit in. And frankly, if we don't succeed in acquisitions, and if we didn't do some of the things that we said we do, I'm not sure we could have kept these executives. Um, and so we are delivering. They see the vision. They, they see where they fit in. They see they're part of the, the organization. And we move them along quickly. You know, if you, if you come into our organization and succeed, you get more responsibility very quickly. And has your view of how to compensate people changed over time in terms of what metrics? I mean, I, I, I'm always um, a fan of comp- you know, companies that focus on some form of customer success in addition to returns on capital and maybe cash flows. Mm. How, how have your views on, on compensating people to, to, to incentivize exactly what you want as a, as a CEO? How, how has that changed over time? 
Uh, I would say it's changed a lot. I mean, I used to be kind of a low fixed, you know, market to below fixed wages and, and way above market variable. So, you know, if you came in and were successful, you were going to be able to double your salary in, in bonus. And what had to happen over time is to steal people away. You know, they already had a mortgage and, and whatever responsibilities you weren't going to, they weren't going to be able to go backwards. So you had to, you had to pony up on the fixed side and, and you could ease up on the variable um, but so we had to basically pay a certain market wage to get these guys in. And so my, my incentive now for all my guys has drifted more and more to stock. So that's if, if the whole company succeeds, you succeed. And we have invest over a number of years. So it's got a golden handcuffs element to it. And so, you know, their variable comp for them is, is primarily based on them achieving their goals and succeeding in their slice of the pie, but their ability to get rich relates to if the stock goes up. So that was a summary of our favorite clips and vignettes from season one of Compounders. You can see that over the first 12 episodes, we got an eclectic mix of lessons and takeaways and highlights, some of which had to do with capital allocation, some of which had to do with culture, and some of, some of which had to do with business strategy. Before um, you know, wrapping up season one, we, we can't forget to uh, thank our sponsor, which, is, which was Tegas. Um, for, for, for any of you who haven't listened to the podcast and listened to my description of our, of my, our relationship with Tegas, Tegas has become an integral part of Coast Street's investment process. You know, when we get to the third stage of our investment process, we invariably reach out to Tegas in order to source high value experts who can help us better understand the companies we are researching. And, and it's kind of funny, we even use the word Tegas as a verb internally. Um, and so Tegas's co-CEO was willing to sponsor Compounders uh, even before we'd released a single episode. Um, and so that, I think that's indicative of how great a partner Tegas has been. And, um, and his support speaks to the quality of the people that work there. So if you're interested in learning more about Tegas platform, um, please visit tegas.co. Or if you listen to Patrick O'Shaughnessy's Invest Like the Best, you can hear me talking about Tegas um, on that show. So we're going to close with uh, you know, a request for feedback. Um, we would love your comments or feedback on how we can make the show better for season two. Um, we also, as I mentioned before, we're interested in warm introductions to potential guests because uh, we want to have the people that, that you would find really interesting on the show. Um, so you can email me uh, either my email address, bclaremont at coastreetcapital.com, or you can email podcast at coastreetcapital.com, or you can follow me uh, on Twitter at Ben Claremont. And with that, we will officially conclude season one of Compounders, the anatomy of multibiker. Please stay tuned for episodes of season two, which will begin dropping in early December. In the meantime, please feel free to reach out to us with your feedback or guest recommendations. And with that, we'll see you in December. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at cove with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibagger.